Well, what do you know about this? It is January 31st, New Year's Eve 2021. I have been away for one year. A lot has gone on during this year. And I have decided to try to resurrect this podcast from the ashes. Um, I disappeared for several reasons. One of the big ones was I was sick. I actually got a very severe case of COVID, the Rona, the bug. And uh, so I thought that this uh, returning episode on New Year's Eve, I would talk about my experience. Um, I was in the hospital. I nearly died from it. Um, but talk about the experience, what I experienced both, um, consciously and subconsciously. And I'll get into what I mean by that, um, later on. But, uh, yeah, it is time to try to resurrect this podcast and talk about a few things. Some of the last bastions of free speech are podcasts. And so, uh, after one year, I'm going to try to come back and get into this. I want to explain why I've been away this podcast, talk about the COVID experience, as well as a few other things that have been going on. And then we are, uh, as time goes along, we are going to get back into the normal stuff of discussing society, relationships, politics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and getting into that. Um, and then even a, maybe a quick year-end review for 2021. Unless you've been living under a rock, you know that a lot of crap has gone down uh, this year. So... Without further ado, let's get into it. All right, so let's get into what I've been doing for the last year. The beginning of the year, I got back from, actually, uh, what was it, August of 2020, I got back to uh, California. Um, from Oregon. I'd spent some time up there. Uh, and the reason being was they, I had somebody ask me to come build a bathroom for them and that fell through. And when I say it fell through, I mean, they didn't want me to build a bathroom. They wanted me to come up and basically be a nanny for their kids. So needless to say, um, I was there for about four or five months again, uh, about four months, and then came back to San Diego County and was there for a while. I believe I was there a total of eight months, somewhere around there, pretty close. Anyway, while I was there, um, I'd been exposed to the bug on multiple occasions um, with no real issue. Um the folks that I was uh, staying with, with the room, um, I had a real nice little, almost like cabin scenario. I was staying out in one of the sheds, 
And uh, really, like I said, it, it was it was like staying in a cabin. I had my own setup there. It was nice, um, very rustic. Enjoyed every minute of it. But I was there and basically living life, helping my buddy um, get his house prepped for sale. And uh, we got it sold. And he now uh, resides in Yuma, Arizona. <clears throat> he is basically, him and his family are my second family. And probably closer than my blood family. In fact, I know they are. And uh, he's more like an adopted dad than a buddy, but, you know, regardless. So he moved there, and uh, during this time in February, I got a call from my ex-brother-in-law's family. And in the process, I was told that uh, my ex-brother-in-law had passed away unexpectedly. Uh, we found out that it appears to be a, a major heart attack. Um, so out of the three or four individuals that I trust my life with, two are no longer with us. So that was kind of an interesting experience. And so I was there. I stayed there for a while um, trying to help out and do different things. Um Shortly after, um, it was time for me to move on. They wanted me to move on. I've been a gypsy for several years. but um, So we, we had a house sale and a close person of mine pass away. And uh, he was one of my close friends. There was, uh, um, it was unexpected. Well, it was expected, but it was unexpected. We knew he was deteriorating. He was blind due to diabetes. Um, he had had the end of his foot amputated. He had a lot of other, excuse me, pre, pre health issues. Um, and they were just exacerbating over the last few months of his life. But he passed away at 44, and uh, yeah, we are, uh, it was rough. It's been a rough uh, 10 months since that has happened. 11, well, yeah, almost 11 months. So, but that was the first part of my year. So now I decided that I was going to go help a quote-unquote friend in Illinois and uh, remodel a house because the idea was I would stay at the house while I remodeled it. So I get there, place needs to be condemned, black mold. It's a trailer, an old trailer. And uh, the individual, his son that was living in there is a complete hoarder. So between years of garbage and bullshit, as well as black mold, the place just was not going to work. So I'm he, all he would have had to do was send me pictures and I could have made other plans. I probably would have headed north to Oregon, which would have possibly kept me from getting the bug. 
but who knows. But anyway, I kept going, decided, hey, you know what? I hadn't been to Michigan to visit family in about 12 years, hadn't seen my sister and brother-in-law in about four years, and I had a newborn nephew uh, that I thought I would come and just say, hey. So I ended up landing at my cousin, my dad's cousins, my second cousin, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, stayed there for about three, four days, about three days, and that's when all hell broke loose. Four days in, three, four days in, I came up two hours north, visit my grandparents that I hadn't seen forever, not knowing that I had COVID, and I had severe COVID, not just the mild case of it. And part of the reason I have the level of, I had the level of COVID that I had was I am borderline or was borderline type two diabetic. And of course, over 300 pounds. So both those comorbidities led to stuff that, uh, I'll get into here in a minute. Um, initially, you know, I was okay. Then I didn't feel so good. I was like, uh, geez, you know, just, I'm not, I'm not feeling this. Um, went to bed, couldn't sleep, you know, up and down, up and down, kind of a bunch of different stuff. And then I get out, I come back for lunch after going out to get uh, some vitamins and stuff. And I'm eating, excuse me, I'm eating a sandwich and drinking Coke and realize I have no taste whatsoever. So I have my cousin's son take me to the hospital in Grand Rapids where they're like, well, you know, here, we're going to give you this pulse, pulse oximeter. You know, if it keeps, you know, if you get down to this level, come back in. About 12 hours later, and this is August, uh, July 31st, I'm back in the hospital. I'm in the emergency room. They do the PCR test, their preemptive test comes back that I have COVID. So they put me in a room in isolation for observation. And then they have to start putting me on oxygen. Because my saturation levels are falling. So at this point, I'm looking at it, I'm going, okay, what are my options? And Doc comes in and he's like, well, you've got COVID and it appears to be that it's going to be a, a pretty bad case. Now, me being me, I am the type of person that I'll literally go, okay, Doc, just give me some Motrin, send me home, I'll sleep it off. The next words out of the doctor's mouth are the words that you never want to hear from a specialist when you go to the hospital. If you go home, you will die. If you stay here, you might die. Looking back on what was said um, and the treatments and everything else, which I can get into at a later time, um, 
was that the best protocol for them to do? I don't know, but uh, by this point, I was not making a lot of sense in the scheme of things. I wrote out an advanced directive, and I put my sister in charge of all of my medical care. Now, a little bit about my sister. She is a top-notch RN. Every hospital she goes to, they want to keep her. She's a traveling nurse right now, but every hospital they go to, she goes to, she ends up as the charge nurse, and they want to keep her. And sometimes they pay her ungodly amounts of money to come be at their hospital. Um, she was a top ICU RN. Now she does mostly mother-baby stuff. Um, I put her in charge of my health care. And I'm slowly watching my, my time to, you know, my, my, body and things start to deteriorate. At one point, I got down to a 77% oxygenation rate, and that's when they started bringing in bigger guns. Apparently, there are some lapses in my um, in my memory. For example, my sister said that I had called them and was talking with them. I made no sense whatsoever. I was slurring my speech um, and that I was basically making no sense whatsoever um, because my brain was being deprived of the level of oxygenation that it needed. Um, she got very worried in that scenario. Um, realized what was going on. Um, I remember the doctor telling me that she was asking if I was being belligerent, which I'm always belligerent when I'm at the hospital. It's, you know, part of being a man, um, is being belligerent. Uh, well, not, not so much. I'm joking, obviously. But I mean, when you grow up with a dad that's an RN and you have a sister that's an RN, two ex-girlfriends that were RNs, an ex-wife that's an RN, um, and you learn, I was an EMT, I was a medical assistant, so I kind of know how the medical profession works. And whenever you're in that scenario, you kind of, medical people are always the worst to deal with, kind of like when you're working in the security and law enforcement field and you have to deal with cops, they're always the worst, you know, because you always think you know that you know, you know, if you're understanding what I'm saying. So um, I may have been belligerent. So when the, when the doctor comes in, he goes, look, you go home, you will die. You stay here, you might die. Those were my options. Um, I remember my sister on... Um, the speakerphone, I vaguely remember her saying, Phil, you need to stay at the hospital. Um, my ex-mother-in-law told me to, uh, don't let them put you in the, in the ICU or intubate you. Um, she was worried that, uh, I was not going to make it, but I finally consented to treatment. So the moment that I said, yes, I will stay for treatment, the last thing I remember vividly was a sh uh, being surrounded by about eight individuals. I remember 
a sharp jab in my side and going down. I kind of regained consciousness as I was being wheeled through um, the hospital to ICU. I remember the little Indian doctor um, looking at me with a very concerned look on his face, um, standing on the second floor as they were wheeling me out to ICU. Um, From there, I went into a coma. And I was in and out of a coma for the next two weeks. Um, So I'm going to start off like this. I'm going to talk about the conscious things that I remember. And then I'm going to discuss uh, the subconscious things, the things going on in my coma in my head that were going on. So the conscious things I remember as I was there, I remember what they call bucking the vent where I was trying to breathe on my own through the pneumonia. Um, and the nurses would have to come in. Uh, my sister was there, she would be in and they would try to calm me down, help calm me down, um, and get it so that I would let the ventilator do what it needed to do, um, and breathe for me. Um, Consciously, I was on 500 milligrams of ketamine, I was on fentanyl, I was on insulin, I was on um, just about everything that they could pack into a scenario, other than, of course, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, which probably would have kicked the living shit out of this and uh, knocked it out in a quicker amount of time. Um, One instance in which the American healthcare system failed versus, say, the healthcare system in Italy and other places where they actually use this med, and it actually uh, has uh, amazing results. But I digress. Um, So I'm there, and uh, so I remember bucking the vent. I remember um, the nurse coming in and uh, taking my blood sugar about every hour or two. Um, She would ask which hand I would want it on and, you know, to move whichever hand I wanted it on. Um, The first week, I I would say probably the first week or 10 days, because I was in ICU a total of 15 days. Um, I would say the first week to 10 days, I don't remember anything. Um, and then I started pulling out a little bit and I remember things like, um, movies. They asked if I wanted a certain movie to raise my hand or move my hand. Um, when I, when they listed a movie that I wanted to watch, quote unquote, you know, um, I remember watching Jurassic Park, Fast and Furious, um, there was another one I don't remember, but um, I think it was a rock movie. With, um, but anyway, I remember Jurassic Park, Fast and Furious. Um, so, you know, watching those along with this. And then I remember having mitts on my hands. Now, my sister had told me that they the last like three or four days is when 
they put the mitts on my hands because I was becoming more and more conscious and they were worried that I was going to grab onto my trach and extubate myself because, again, as a dude that doesn't like that kind of stuff, I knew, um, you know, I would attempt something like that probably. So, um, as I'm going through all this, all of a sudden, everything just kind of ceases. And again, this is my conscious recollection of everything. Um, I will discuss the subconscious in a bit, uh, what was going on in my brain. Um, so with all of this, all of a sudden, everything stops. Next thing I know, I am getting, uh, I'm having my things taken off, lines being pulled, um, basically getting me situated. Now, I had thought that possibly, despite everything that I've ever known religiously about different things, I had thought that I had died and that she was just talking to a corpse to, uh, to make her self comfortable around having to take care of this. I thought I had been, uh, there for months and that they had finally given up on me. I did not realize initially that I had made it, um, she kept thanking me for for cooperating, for not, you know, not making her job difficult. Um, I didn't understand what was going on, and my sister at the time, uh, at the time, a few days later, ended up telling me that they she had wanted them to get her on the iPad, so that way, as I came out of it, because I made a sudden and dramatic turn. I went from a 20% chance of survival and we're losing him where, you know, he's clotting. Um, his lungs are not responding. His heart could give out to literally making a right hand turn and literally doing a 180 more than even a right hand turn, just literally doing a 180 and all of a sudden, you know, leaps and bounds better. Um, so, you know, this is being pulled apart, you know, I'm getting everything taken off. Um, they didn't, so I'm confused. My sister's, you know, so, you know, they start with that. Next thing I know, I'm waking up and, you know, I, I they're like, well, you know, we need to get him to sit up. And so I sat up of my own volition. I remember the nurse standing next to me. She kind of jumped back and my sister was there and she just kind of looks at me sideways and she's telling me, Hey, it's me. It's your sister. I recognize the eyes subconsciously, but it did not register that it was my sister. Um, consciously I couldn't talk. I was still intubated. Um, but I was coming out of it. And then I remember going back to sleep. Next thing I know, I wake up. And, um, it took about a day and a half to finally get the respiratory therapist in there to, uh, 
to extubate me and he was not happy about it. Um, he was the one that kept pushing my sister to try to trach me. And she's like, you don't understand. You trach him. He has anxiety issues. But on top of that, he'll pull this entire freaking hospital down on everybody. If he wakes up and he's got a tube in his throat, uh, coming out of his throat, you don't understand my brother. And luckily, and this is part of the reason why I put her in charge. So anyway, finally get the tube out. Yeah, of course, I can't talk for the first couple days. Um, and then we, you know, about a day after that, the next morning, I get taken out of ICU and taken down to a room. From there, I spent two weeks there. I had incredible nurses. Um, a lot of them were new um, or very little uh, response. And I went from not being able to do anything to, and being on high flow oxygen to four liters of oxygen and being able to walk with a walker and, um, and, uh, obviously a wheelchair for, uh, two weeks later. Um, so I was in a hospital a total of a month. Um, and uh, the the main hospital, you know, I uh, the nurses were very encouraging. Um, <laughs> they had some incredibly beautiful female nurses there that I was like, damn it, I am. <laughs> I wish I wasn't sick. I'd be I'd be making moves over here. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it was, uh, they did an amazing job. Butterworth Hospital in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, tremendous, tremendous job, despite the fact that they were, they're overworked, underpaid, and unappreciated. Um, and uh, so, you know, and then from there, I went to a, what they refer to as a subacute rehab center. Now, the subacute rehab in Big Rapids is about an hour north. Um, I spent 20 days there. Uh, when I got there, I was barely, but I was between four and five liters of oxygen and could barely use a walker. Um, I was on significant drugs. Um, and one in particular that they were using to protect my lungs was giving me other symptoms that were causing raking havoc with my system. And I had to be weaned off of it. And it was, it was brutal. It was rough, but it did what it needed to do. And as I got weaned off of it, I started making, um, progress by leaps and bounds. Um, and, uh, I remember I, I shared a room with another gentleman, um, made a couple friends there. That staff was also great the first uh, three or four nights. Um, I don't do well in other places, um, sleeping in places that I'm not familiar with. Um, I've always been that way um, in my adult life. Maybe it's because I was shunted around so much as a child that... Um, as an adult, I kind of like to have my, my space 
And if I'm at a different space, I don't sleep very well. That's why I rarely would, you know, when I was dating somebody, would rarely sleep at their house. Um, because, you know, trust issues, I guess. But anyway, um, the first couple nights, uh, a couple of the staff would come in and sit with me. Um, because uh, the meds were making my anxiety so much more acute. And then um, I, after about a week, week to 10 days, I was fine. I was in my routine, but every day and every night, walking the floors, getting stronger, doing, you know, even on days that I didn't want to do the physical therapy, I went down and did the physical therapy. Um, the physical therapists were amazed that I was, you know, I, within seven days, I was uh, from four liters of oxygen through nasal cannula to basically a liter of oxygen through the nasal cannula. Um, and then uh, what I would do for about four days was I wouldn't have the oxygen during the day. And then I would wear the cannula at night while I slept just to make sure. Once my oxygen saturation was over 96 at night uh, while I was sleeping, um, I didn't need it anymore. And so I just finished up my last, uh, you know, basically week to 10 days of just physically getting strong enough to be able to walk around without a walker um, and without a cane. Uh, from there, I came to my sister's farm. I've been farm sitting for her since because she's in California as a traveling nurse and uh, getting progressively stronger. I'm about 75 to 80% where I was. That is the physical and conscious aspect of what I have for COVID. Now let's discuss what I experienced when I was in my coma And subconscious. My, my, my conscious scenario, my subconscious scenario when I was out, I remember sleeping. I felt like I had slept for a long time. Um, when I opened my eyes, I felt like I was laying down on a sofa that had nanotechnology running through it, what I could see, nanotechnology running through it. Um, I could hear the nurses talking and talking shift change and giving, giving report and everything like that. Um, and they would come and ask me questions and this and that. And I would try, you know, they'd put a, a cold cloth on. I mean, they did a great job taking care of me. Um, but, they were wearing ICU uniforms, specific uniforms. I didn't see those uniforms. What I saw was lab coats. Um, I, I was on this quote unquote, um, uh, nanotechnology couch that was basically keeping me alive. And if I moved from it, I might not make it. Um, Excuse me. Holy crap. That came out of nowhere. Um, and then from there, uh, basically, um, 
I was, I was asked not to move around. Try not to move. Now, when you're on 500 milligrams of ketamine, you're on max dose of fentanyl, you're on max dose of everything. They even put me, uh, they even put a paralytic in me because I kept moving. And I guess my sister was there because I remember this distinctly in the subconscious. I was kind of drifting in and out. I hear her go, I've ne- he's got so much going into him and he still is moving. He'll lift his leg, he'll move his leg, he'll move his arm. Um, you know, I, I can't believe how physically strong this man is. And my sister proceeded to say something along the lines of, he is physically the, one of the strongest individuals I've ever heard of. And, uh, um, so even with all of this, I was moving. And part of my moving was, is in my brain, um, if I could stand up and if I could get away from this couch with this nanotechnology, um, I'd be okay. I could get up and I can, you know, that's why I kept bucking the vent. Um, so, um, while this was going on, if they had to adjust whatever meds, um, for those that have seen the Lord of the Rings, remember the aspect when they're running through the last part of the mines of Moria, when they get to the bridge and the staircases and things. I basically, in my mind's eye, was going through some of the same scenarios, um, traversing terrain in my head that looked very much like that. While traversing this terrain, there were panels. And when I say panels, I'm talking panels like the size of a semi-trailer, 53 foot, you know, semi-trailer type panels. And they all were shifting like shuffling dominoes. Um, One in particular was a black goo, almost looked like a lava lamp. And that represented COVID in my subconscious. So I was in like two levels of coma when I was in the abyss dealing with the panels. Um, I had to deal with that. And then I was in a semi conscious state where I knew there were nurses around. I knew there were people around, but I didn't. And, and I thought I was part of an experiment in my head, hence the nanotechnology couch and um, the facilitators in the lab coats um, and things along that line. I didn't even realize I was in a room until um, I became conscious. I thought I was in a a case study uh, scenario. Um, And... uh, so and I and in my mind I had been there for months. Um, that's why when they everything they started shutting off everything and pulling lines, I thought they had given up on me. Um, that I'd been there too long. The money had run out. Um, the insurance had run out. The insurance said we're not going to do this anymore, and they gave up on me. Um, not knowing I'd only been there two weeks, it felt like I was there five or six months. Um, so for people that have been in comas. For years, I can't imagine how much longer in their brain 
they have felt that they've, you know, this longer than what they think. I mean, I was in it for two weeks and I thought I'd been there for, uh, four to six months. So, um, but I'm traveling through this abyss and at every scenario there is, you know, basically the Grim Reaper. And I remember hearing my good friend and adopted dad in my subconscious. I didn't know he had actually said it physically, but in my subconscious, he was there saying, Phil, you got to live, man. You got to live. And I'm going through all this. Physically, it looks like they're going to lose me. And all of a sudden, I get to this area and I'm staring this being in the face. And I think for a minute and I go, you know what? I've talked so much shit about COVID, getting COVID, masks, all this other crap, that now I'm going to die from it? No, I'm not going to die from it. So in my subconscious mind, you know, as I'm, you know, sitting on the couch, the nano couch being a, 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 um, uh, test subject. And then deeper into my coma, I am watching these panels move while traversing this abyss. Um, I made up my mind in that scenario that I was not going to die of COVID. The only concern was, was this physical shell going to survive? And I remember feeling relief that, hey, you know what, I'm going to make it, so I'm going to just rest for a minute. And then I remember almost like waking up in my coma, and the panels had shifted. They were now not horizontal, like looking at a TV. They were now um, vertical. And they had shifted horizontally and vertically. So now I was looking at them lengthwise rather than sideways like a television. And they, there was water. And they were bouncing in and out of water. And literally when I came to, when they realized I was going to make it, they started shutting stuff off. It sounded like somebody had just turned off a diesel motor. And the COVID panel was halfway in and halfway out of the water. And in my mind's eye, I'm sitting here thinking, well, what the hell does that mean? And then, of course, they started pulling stuff off. And like I said, I was, you know, physically, you know, I was, I was cognizant of what was going on, except I thought I hadn't made it initially. Um, but going through all of this subconsciously, you know, I was wrestling not only with myself, but also with, with demons. Um, and then at the very end, I realized as I was laying there, they pulled everything off and I'm literally laying in, uh, in the bed and to, in, I was still because of all the meds out of it. I was like, I was in this little giant empty room with this echo and everything going on. And I laid there for about 45 minutes before I realized, well, shit, if I would have died, I would have died already. I must've made it. What do you know about that? And, uh, so then I started going into, um, the other stuff 
and uh, the recovery. So with all of that, I get done. I get put into the hospital room. They come and take a chest x-ray. I've got double pneumonia. I've got ventilator-induced pneumonia, and I've got COVID pneumonia. Uh, my left lung is completely white, and my right lung is half white. They're giving me six months to a year before I can even walk or function as a normal human being. Being sick sucks, um, and I don't like being sick, and I certainly don't like people having to take care of me like that. So I, when I heard six months to a year, I was like, fuck that. <laughs> fuck that. We're not doing that. Um, what should have taken a year, well, what should have taken six months, I wrapped around in about seven weeks, uh, and now we are at... Let's see, Christmas Eve was four months. Well, let's see, January 2nd will be will be um, a little over five months that uh, since I contracted. The COVID been about three and a, three three and a half months since um, I got out of um, physical therapy. Um, so I went from having oh uh, all the lung issues, and uh, they came in initially. You know, listen to lung sounds. Yes, you got the pneumonia. It's really bad. We're going to monitor you. They had me hooked up to a heart monitor as well as, you know, obviously the oxygen and other stuff. <coughs> Four days later, the pulmonologist comes in, check my lungs again. I have no lung sounds. It's clear, which completely baffled him. I guess I am an anomaly for them. 98% of people in that hospital that got to that level of COVID didn't make it. at that hospital. I want you to understand 2% of the people that go into ICU at that hospital with the severity of the case I had make it out. It's lucky to be here. Now, on the recovery side of things, um, I push myself. Um, PT... Didn't think that I was going to, you know, we're going to take it slow. We want you to try to stand up. I stood straight up, even though my muscles were very atrophied. They still are. But it gets better daily, and I'm getting stronger daily. So uh, this is part, this was the immediate stuff with COVID. So now I want to talk about recovery phase, what I was doing with this. A couple of the things. A buddy of mine sent me some supplements. Now, I have an entire case of vitamins and minerals, uh, meds that I was taking, all sorts of things. I took my entire script of, of meds and got everything situated. Um, so... Uh, but one of the things is a friend of mine, I read an article from the University of Augusta that was talking about CBD in post-COVID cases. Um, 
and it was talking about the fact that CBD in post-COVID cases is really um, showed significant help in lung function and lung repair. The lungs are one of very few um, organs in the body that can actually regenerate themselves if given the opportunity. And CBD oil tends to help with that. Now, along with that is another supplement known as Samoralin. Now, Samoralin is used not only as a muscle builder and a weight loss, but it also allows for um, lung uh, function, better lung function. So I've been taking both CBD and Samoralin. And for those of you that don't know, look up this, the benefits of CBD oil and Samoralin. I take these and they have tremendously helped with my lung recovery. Um, anytime that I'm having an issue, I also take um, NSAIDs, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Um, and, uh, so things like Advil, Aleve help with, um, with inflammation, which was the big thing that my lungs, my lungs were just incredibly inflamed because that's what COVID does is it is, it inflames the lungs. So between the Advil and the Aleve, along with the, um, the Samoralin and the CBD oil has helped my lungs and my ability to do stuff significantly. Now, mind you, I am in the middle of winter in Michigan. There's snow on the ground. I take care of five cats, two dogs, 10 goats, 30 chickens, and four rabbits and a partridge in a pear tree. Um, and, uh, along with whatever else the farm needs at the moment for, uh, for some, and that includes, you know, keeping the, uh, the house clean. Other, so there's constant dust and things getting into my lungs and is still able to function, um, much better. I went from, you know, 200 cough drops every 10 to 12 days to, I think I've had three cough drops in the last week. Um, so tremendous, tremendous change as far as the lung and capacity. And it is due to the vitamins, the minerals, specifically the CBD and the Samoralin. Along with that, part of what helped with the, uh, healing and recovery was, I have a tremendous immune system um, that I built up over years, and I was allowed to actually finally use it um, in a way that it saved my ass, um, along with people and their various religious beliefs, praying to whatever entity they believed in for my healing and my uh, recovery. I believe that people's faith can cause changes in people's lives. I'll put it that way. Um, so between prayer, between, you know, between a good immune system, between all of these supplements and vitamins and minerals, I have defeated COVID 
and now according to their own things, number one, I don't need a vaccine. Number two, I have a two in 1,000 chance of ever getting it back again. And from that, I have a virtually non-existent chance of it being fatal, uh, even with co- with uh, comorbidities, uh, should I, in that 2 and 1,000, get it back again. So I'm pretty well defeated it. I'm good to go. Uh, five months out, I am 85% situated. Again, it is December 31st, 2021, the last day of one hell of a year. And we're going to go forward from there. Welcome back. And I'm glad that my audience has listened. I hope that you're still around. I hope that you... uh, will want more of this. I am going to try to uh, be a better steward of this podcast and all these things. Try to update quicker, not every couple months, but maybe once a week, every couple weeks. And I know I keep saying this, but life happens. Sometimes life gets in the way, but I need to make time for this. So thank you for listening. This is my COVID experience. Our next go around, we are going to discuss the current political scenario around the the bug, the vaccinations, things along, and the political implications, as well as the uh, societal implications of the different things going on. Unless you've been living under a rock, you know what I'm talking about. We're also going to get into uh, some things that I think should be addressed that kind of go into where the theme of this podcast was going in the past. And finally, for those of you that uh, want to, I have Instagram. I have the Toxic Masculinity Facebook page. You can go find it. The, find me there. Um, that also will start um, being updated on a regular basis based upon um, my health feeling better and everything moving forward from there. Um, I try to tie that to this podcast, so I am going to be back to update that, get that thing situated again. And also, I have my Instagram is under heavy duty Philip, all one word, Philip with two L's. And my TikTok I do have a TikTok as well, um, is under Heavy Duty Philip. Same spelling as my Instagram. Um, check those out and uh, send me a message there. Send me a message here. Send me a message on Instagram. And uh, if you have any questions, concerns, content ideas, or things along that line, let me know. I want to do better by this. I think these are the last bastions of uh, true freedom of speech um, that allow uh, large numbers of people to understand and get info um, that is uncensored, at least for the most part. Thank you again. I'm your host, Philip Vandermeulen, defeated severe COVID. 
Let's go, Brandon.